Buzzard writes in, Peyton Manning isn't on HGH. He can't get caught because he has a reputation to uphold. Right, 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 right. I think what you mean is he has sponsorship dollars to protect. That's the argument. The only reason why Peyton Manning might not be on HGH or some form of performance-enhancing substance that helps to delay the aging process, helps to allow him to play even though his fingers are numb, even though he's been through multiple neck surgeries. What is allowing him to get his body into a place that he can play football at the NFL level? I don't know what he's doing. And the argument is that he's not using HGH because if he were to get caught and slapped with a four-game ban, he might lose his Buick deal. He might lose his Papa John's deal. He can't lose his Papa John's deal because I think he owns like 10 Papa John's restaurants, direct TV, whatever it is. He sponsors a lot of things. He'll sponsor anything. Peyton Manning will sponsor dog food. It doesn't matter. I think Peyton Manning will draw the line at the sexual performance enhancing drugs. I don't think you'll see Peyton Manning in a bathtub holding hands with woman X that's not too attractive, but Definitely someone that you would want to have sexual interlude with, but not too attractive. That's a husband and wife, okay? It's not some fantasy. It's just regular husband and wife sex that they're trying to enable, right? So I don't think Peyton Manning will be seen sitting in a bathtub watching the sunrise in a Viagra commercial. I don't think, but I, I, I wouldn't put it past him. I think that's the line for Peyton Manning, but I don't know where the line is. I, I really don't. He's in everything. Oh, you'll give me money to pitch this product? Sold. Done. Where do you need me? So that's the reason. That's the argument. That's why Peyton Manning might not be on HGH. But it's hard to believe that a person at 40 years old gets his body to that place where it can play at the NFL level after all these surgeries and all this, the degradation of the body. He uses nothing to build it back up. Okay, sure. I mean, it's possible. But we're just playing probabilities over here. Probabilities defining possibilities. And if I had to bet... If it was for my life or for my personal fortune, I would bet that he's taking something. I would. I just would. Speculation. Reckless speculation. But that's my that, that would be my wager. But this is a future Hall of Famer. He, why, why would he risk his reputation? You mean like future Hall of Famer Antonio Gates? That guy? I mean, this is one of the greatest tight ends of all time. Also, the least discussed suspension for performance-enhancing drugs I've ever witnessed. There was literally no articles written about it. He was suspended for four games, and no one wrote a word about it. No one spoke a single syllable about the suspension on any sports media platforms. It was amazing to watch. People really care when their baseball players take HGH. When baseball players take HGH, it's a really big deal! Future Hall of Famer Antonio Gates, don't care. Just a total shoulder shrug. Now, another buzzard writes in, Steve Smith was revered last Sunday because it was the end of his career. Duh. Duh. Duh, bruh. Duh, bruh. Duh, bruh. If any word at the end of a message to me ends in UH, I know it's condescending. I get it. Duh, bruh. Duh, bruh. Duh, bruh. Duh, morons yes yes correct steve smith had a full career he's already 36 which is part of the reason why he tore his achilles because he's still playing football at age 36 
and tearing your Achilles at age 36 impacts the rest of your career very little because you didn't have much of a career left to play. Arian Foster's career is being cut short by a torn Achilles, not Steve Smith's. Steve Smith's career is getting cut short by a few games. Arian Foster's career might have been cut short by years because of the Achilles tear. Arian Foster lost so much more getting hurt this season than Steve Smith did. I mean, that Achilles tear might have cost Arian Foster a Hall of Fame induction. Think about it. Now, Steve Smith may or may not be a Hall of Famer. I don't know. But he's definitely a jerk. We've established that on the last show. If you want to go back to the last show, yesterday's show, we discussed Steve Smith's jerkitude. And I think, yeah, at best, Steve Smith is a jerk. At worst, he's a vile human being. Meanwhile, Arian Foster is unanimously considered an incredible all-around person. And I lamented on the last show that there is this outpouring of condolences surrounding Steve Smith's torn Achilles that we didn't hear when Arian Foster tore his Achilles. And it was just weird to me. It was a weird dichotomy I noticed. Steve Smith receives this outpouring of emotion while Arian Foster is scoffed at for being too brittle. Yes, Arian Foster, too brittle to play the most violent game ever devised. Too brittle. Injury prone. Made of glass. Get out of here with your torn Achilles. Surprised it didn't happen earlier in the season. <laughs> Unbelievable. But that's how I know that this sport, this NFL, is going to go on and will continue to exist and be popular even once all the youth football leagues have closed down. It will still go on. When families and schools and insurance companies have shuttered the sport at the youth level, the NFL will continue to thrive. It will continue to thrive even though the guys wearing the uniforms are individuals pulled from the margins of society and it won't matter. We will still tune in. We will still buy their pizzas, wear their jerseys, regardless of their criminal record. Doesn't matter. Regardless of what performance enhancers it took to get them on the field, doesn't matter. We just don't give a shit when it comes to NFL players. We don't care what you put in your body. We don't care what you've done in your past. Just go out there and be as violent as possible and win a football game in the process and we will love you. The sports public seems to have a greater affinity for the player that is wired like Steve Smith than it does for Arian Foster. And that's just, that conflicts with my sensibilities. The reason I bring it up, the reason why we're talking about it on multiple shows is because I'm always intrigued when I see the majority feeling one way and I feel a different way. Because I think the majority wants to see the rage monster, the Steve Smith rage monster. They want to see that individual, that archetype, spewing hate and bullying everyone around him. This is the individual they revere, the menacing sportsman. He's the character that receives the adulation. You saw it this past weekend. It was palpable. It was crazy to see and feel to me. But it was there. It was present. The peacemaker, Arian Foster, it wasn't present. He was dismissed. Thank you, Arian. We're moving on. Alfred Blue or Chris Polk, please respond. It's because of that. It's because of that whole concept that we still flood the Coliseum. We will flood the Coliseum even after players start dying on the field, even after youth football has been abolished. We will still flood the Coliseum. 
we will still subscribe to the Red Zone channel, even though the Red Zone channel has literally become a Red Zone. The Blood Zone channel, we will continue to subscribe. A literal Red Zone channel. And on my DVR, I expect when I click the Guide channel and I hover over the Red Zone channel, I just expect little drops of blood to start dripping from my television. That's where we're at right now. And it's fine. I, I, I don't, Few others seem to be as conflicted about this as I am. And so we are moving on to other topics. Nuggets, yes, nuggets. I know my audience. They don't care about this. They don't want to hear about this. Ah, noises. Ah, moral conundrum. Ah, give me fantasy nuggets. Okay, fine. Fine. I had this moral conundrum. I'm folding it up. I'm putting it in my backpack. I will carry it with me while I smash and crush people with fantasy nugget cannon. Here's a new segment, old tweets of mine that came true 400 days later. 400 days ago, I wrote, good luck this Sunday, Andre Holmes, with a little kiss icon, lips icon. A year ago today, I was in love with Andre Holmes. Loved him, loved his upside, touted him strongly. I said, Andre Holmes is Stephen Hill without the expectations. That's another tweet that I said. I had another tweet where it was just Andre Holmes and a rocket ship. Oh, did I love Andre Holmes last year? And then he had a big week. One big week. And then I played him again, and he didn't do anything. And then he didn't do anything for the rest of the season. <laughs> and we still have people trolling me. Hey, what about Andre Holmes? I'll write a tweet about Player X, and they will write back about Andre Holmes, just completely out of context, just to try to bother me. And so I put Andre Holmes out of my mind. I chalked that one up as a loss. And then last week, what happens? Oh, Andre Holmes, two touchdowns. Just when I thought I was out on Andre Holmes, he pulls me back in. Yes, he does. This Andre Holmes character continues to pull me back in. He has an ascending quarterback. Derek Carr looks great. He will be a QB1 the rest of the way. Derek Carr, oh, yes. Derek Carr, oh, yes. That boy, good man. That boy can play. We're not doing Dubious Southerner today. We're not... That Derek Carr boy, he can play football. All right, just limited, limited, very limited. Man. But at one point in the first half, the Raiders game against the Jets last weekend, before the team pivoted to go run heavy once they had a big lead, Derek Carr in the first half, in the second quarter, was 13 for 15 for 163 yards and three touchdowns. Derek Carr at one point in the game was on pace for six touchdowns versus an elite pass defense. That's who Derek Carr is now. There's no more dissension around Derek Carr. The good guys won. Those of us that trusted Derek Carr would get better once he had weapons, we won. He's good. He's a QB1 now. He'll be a QB1 next year and the year after that and the year after that. Why? Because he's good and Amari Cooper's good and Michael Crabtree apparently is good. It was impossible to know what Michael Crabtree was all along because he had Colin Kaepernick as his quarterback. That was a huge handicap. You take away the handicap, he's great. So Michael Crabtree is the ideal flanker for Derek Carr. Amari Cooper is a terrific X receiver. And now we have Andre Holmes, the athletic guy off the bench, the athletic fourth receiver that can go out and score you two touchdowns when called upon. Oh, boy. And then Clive Walford, the most athletic tight end from this previous draft class. He outsnapped Mikel Rivera last week. And if the Raiders hadn't pivoted to a run-heavy approach, 
I think Clive Walford would have racked up more targets, receptions, and yards last week. So I'm rostering Clive Walford. He might be the next ascending tight end. I know right now it's all about Vernon Davis because Vernon Davis just escaped Colin Kaepernick as well. You go from Colin Kaepernick to Peyton Manning, that's actually a big upgrade. I mean, it's surprising. It's shocking to see what Demarius Thomas is doing. Look at Demarius Thomas's production despite having no quarterback this year. It's hugely impressive. Demarius Thomas is having one of the most impressive seasons of any wide receiver because he's doing it without a quarterback. And yet, even though Demarius Thomas doesn't have a quarterback, he has more of a quarterback than Vernon Davis had in San Francisco. Level set. Demarius Thomas has no quarterback. Vernon Davis had negative quarterback play. So that's even worse, right? You don't want to be negative. So at least now Vernon Davis is on equal footing. He's back to the baseline for Vernon Davis. So that's an upgrade. That's a pretty big upgrade because Vernon Davis... The fastest tight end in the league. He's a speed size freak. He's the original speed size freak at the tight end position. Before Jimmy Graham, it was Vernon Davis. And so now we have Vernon Davis in the top 20 in both the rest of season ranks on playerprofiler.com as well as the weekly ranks. So this week, we have Vernon Davis as a top 15 play. Oh, it's going to take him a while to get acclimated. No, it's not. Everyone runs the West Coast offense. They're going to call plays in the huddle. Vernon Davis is going to know where to be, and he's going to execute the route, and he will secure catches from Peyton Manning and most likely have his best game of the season. I will predict that. We'll write that down. Put that down in our little ledger. For the record, I'm predicting Vernon Davis will have his best game of the season now that he has at least a zero at the quarterback position instead of a negative number. So I like Vernon Davis, but if you can't get Vernon Davis, go get Clive Walford because of Derek Carr. Continue to put Derek Carr's performance last week in context. It was only the third time that a Todd Bowles-led defense had allowed four passing touchdowns to a quarterback. And we can go back a few more weeks. Look what Derek Carr did against the Broncos. Broncos, great pass defense. One of the greatest pass defenses we've ever seen. The Broncos might have a better defense this year than Seattle did in 2013. It's debatable. That's crazy. Yet, Derek Carr, against this defense, we might be seeing a generational defense, this Denver Broncos defense. Derek Carr against that defense, 249 yards, one touchdown, no turnovers. What? This Derek Carr guy, it's amazing. You know how good that is? Aaron Rodgers against the same defense, 77 yards, no touchdowns. Whoa, whoa. Whoa. So yeah, there's some optimism, some reason for optimism around Andre Holmes. Because Andre Holmes, if you go to playerprofiler.com, he was dominant at Hillsdale College, a small school. Okay. He has a 90th percentile height-adjusted speed score. And his burst score, which is the vertical jump and the broad jump mixed together into one metric, and his agility score, the three-cone drill and the 20-yard shuttle in one metric, both are 68th percentile or higher it all adds up to a 1019 84th percentile catch radius. The problem with Andre Holmes, and it's the problem he's always had, is he's not good at contested catches. This is not his strength. His overall catch rate is 50%. This has been the problem with Andre Holmes. If we go back to last year, again, I want to get excited about these. his size, 6'4", 223. When you look at his stature and his Workout metrics, he's comparable to Larry Fitzgerald. The issue is, the reason why Andre Holmes is polar opposite from Larry Fitzgerald is that even though they're similar size, similar athleticism, at the catch point, Andre Holmes is one of the worst in the league. 
Last year, his catch rate was 47.5%. They gave him an opportunity. And he went out and he posted 7.0 yards per target, 81st in the league, and a 47.5% catch rate, 94th in the league. And even on Sunday, he had a mind-numbing concentration drop where he ran a quick out, he was wide open, he had plenty of room to pivot upfield and gobble up yards after the catch. He knew it, and so what happened? He turned his head before he had secured the football and just puked it on the ground because that's what Andre Holmes does. That's sadly, I would love to get re-inspired by Andre Holmes and his two touchdowns from last week and get re-inspired by this ascending quarterback in Derek Carr. Oh, it's all coming together. Oh, Andre Holmes is back. No, he's not. I refuse to believe it. So I'm going to be a realist on Andre Holmes and continue to leave those tweets from last year in the dustbin and hopefully never look at them again, even though they constantly get brought back to the surface by these trolls who have favorited or now liked, I suppose, because now Twitter has changed their favorite to like for some reason, trying to skew younger, I suppose. They favorite these tweets so they can then make fun of me later. I just, the, my followers, like, great guys, wow. But this happens, you see these guys resurface. And it just reminds me every time we talk about the year of the old man, we start seeing these players like Andre Holmes, old crushes from the past resurfacing. And one of the guys I've liked for a while is Stedman Bailey. And in Dynasty, I changed my mind on Stedman Bailey. I said, I'm out on Stedman Bailey four weeks ago. I'm done. No Brian Quick. Stedman Bailey still one catch for three yards. It was just, it wasn't good. He wasn't productive at all. But that offense is just horrendous. The rush offense is incredibly efficient. Todd Gurley is incredible, right? I mean, here's some gratuitous Todd Gurley numbers in your face. He's fifth in the NFL in rush yards, 575, after missing the first two games and being played sparingly in week three. He has 575 yards, fifth in the NFL. He's first in yards per carry, 6.12. He's first in yards per game, 115. <laughs> what? He's also first in the league in runs of 25 yards or more. He has five runs of 25 yards or longer. Todd Gurley. <laughs> He's crazy. He's just, I can't even believe it, how good he is. But for some reason, he's not helping Nick Foles at all. Nick Foles is still flailing, still a bottom five quarterback. And I continue to be intractable with my Andre Holmes isn't a good receiver belief. I've changed my mind, and I'm not changing it back on Andre Holmes. I'm changing my mind again. I'm changing my mind back on Stedman Bailey. I'm going to start stashing him again in Dynasty because I believe he just needs to get out of there. I've seen too many players resurface and reascend in their late 20s and early 30s this year that I am upset at myself for not having more conviction in Stedman Bailey, and so I'm going to re-fortify my conviction in Stedman Bailey, and I'm going to reacquire him in Dynasty Leagues and continue to stash him, hope that he does something like Emmanuel Sanders, leaves the situation that he's in, goes somewhere where he's a featured number two receiver, and can be productive. I think he has the profile to be productive. I've always said that going back to West Virginia, Stedman Bailey is a better receiver than Tavon Austin. If you look at what Tavon Austin's now doing, Tavon Austin is having this ascension. Two touchdowns. Wow. 
There is one receiver on the Rams who's fantasy relevant. It is Tavon Austin. You have a low volume pass offense that can only support one receiver. And that one receiver is Tavon Austin. So forget Brian Quick, forget Kenny Britt, and forget Stedman Bailey in redraft. Just focus all of your attention on Tavon Austin. He's the focal point of their pass offense, and Todd Gurley's the focal point of their rush offense, and that's it. Everyone else can be forgotten about. But in Dynasty, I'm still quietly hopeful that Stedman Bailey will escape and ascend somewhere else. I mean, look at Tim Hightower. Tim Hightower is back in the league. Can you believe it? Tim Hightower was out of the league for years, and now he's back. Hey, Tim, where have you been? What? The problem is Tim Hightower doesn't have a unique role, a unique skill set in New Orleans. C.J. Spiller is going to handle the passing down work, although Mark Ingram has been capable in the passing downs as well. Oftentimes they'll play... Mark Ingram and C.J. Spiller together, they'll put C.J. Spiller in the slot, and Mark Ingram will be the running back in passing situations, and I don't see that changing with Tim Hightower. At least with Kyrie Robinson, you had a between-the-tackles grinder that was a step up in terms of running angry. You really wanted to pound the defense. If you really wanted someone to grind out some yards, you'd put in Kyrie Robinson. Tim Hightower, not as good in the passing game as C.J. Spiller, and he's not as good between the tackles as Mark Ingram, so I'm not sure where he fits in that Saints offense, but in super deep leagues, yeah, he's worth a stash because it's the year of the old man. You have to stash all of these guys. If they ever had a fantasy-relevant season, and Tim Hightower did have fantasy-relevant seasons in Washington, you have to stash them in case they have this renaissance like these other receivers and other running backs are having. It's unbelievable. One guy that I don't think is going to make a comeback this year is C.J. Anderson. Since C.J. Anderson had a good game, he had over 100 yards and a touchdown, now... Everyone's back on C.J. Anderson thinking, oh, we better go get C.J. Anderson. Oh, now it's time to start him. I've been sitting on him all year, hoping that he turns it around. Now it's time to start him. Now I'm all in on C.J. Anderson. No, Ronnie Hillman's the guy there. C.J. Anderson scored on a long touchdown run on a gaping hole, and he barely scored. I mean, he was barely touched, but at the end, the defenders converged on him and almost stopped him from getting in the end zone. Ronnie Hillman, on the other hand, would have scored that without being touched. Because he's faster, he has more burst, he would have simply accelerated into the end zone without even being touched. C.J. Anderson was touched at the end, but he still managed to to plow his way into the end zone. Either way, C.J. Anderson's touchdown last week was only scored because Hillman left with a quad injury. That would have been Hillman's touchdown had he not left for a short period of time with a quad injury. Because Ronnie Hillman has been receiving the red zone touches and the passing down targets for the Broncos. He is the back to own, even though C.J. Anderson was technically more efficient against Green Bay. C.J. Anderson averaged 7.2 yards per carry last week. It looks on the surface like C.J. Anderson is back, but I don't think he is because I don't think he has usurped Ronnie Hillman. I think Ronnie Hillman will continue to be the man and continue to receive touches in high-leverage fantasy point-scoring situations, and that's really what you're looking for. The bottom line is Ronnie Hillman is getting all the touches in the high-leverage fantasy point-scoring situations, and if you go to playerprofiler.com and go to our weekly rankings, we have Ronnie Hillman in the top 20. We don't have C.J. Anderson in the top 25 for that reason. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if Alfred Blue is no longer in the league next year. His profile on playerprofiler.com 
is as bad as it gets. I mean, that's all you need to do is go to playerprofiler.com, look at Alfred Blue's profile for one second. Just one second. I mean, you can have a stopwatch. Just click it and click it. One second. And you'll know at that moment, okay, Alfred Blue isn't good. Moving on. Chris Polk at least has some positive characteristics and deserves to lead that backfield in touches. Please, Houston! <gasps> Bill O'Brien needs to take his head out of his butt chin. I don't even know how that's possible. I can't imagine some sort of surrealist Salvador Dali painting where a guy's face is coming out of his own chin. That's what Bill O'Brien needs to do. He needs to take his head out of his own butt chin and just play Chris Polk, and let's see if he can be a workhorse. Because Alfred Blue stinks. I rarely say this. These guys are the top 1% of the top 1% in the most violent sport in the history of mankind. So, of course, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to refrain from calling them names. Refrain from saying they suck. Refrain from the rudeness. They deserve more than that, except Alfred Blue doesn't deserve more than that. Alfred Blue, I just think it was a mistake that Alfred Blue was let into the NFL. He didn't get snaps in college. He couldn't get on the field in college. Yet somehow, someone in Houston thought that it was a good idea to draft him. Is it because he had great workout metrics like Kristen Michael? Give him a chance, take a flyer, a lotto ticket, running back? Maybe Texas A&M didn't know what they had. Maybe we can coach him up. Kristen Michael, I get it. I get why you would do that with a late-round pick. Take a flyer on Kristen Michael, I would. But to take a flyer on Alfred Blue, a player with bottom percentile athleticism and no college production, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? And then to continue to start him, and he continues to post league bottom efficiency numbers, it's maddening. And I don't even care. It's not like I own Chris Polk in any league. It's just, it offends my sensibilities. Because Chris Polk isn't very good either. You should follow Pat underscore Thorman on Twitter. He had a great stat. Alfred Blue and Chris Polk combined for 28 touches and zero broken tackles last week. Think about that. 28 touches, zero broken tackles, a 0% juke rate in 28 touches. I've never heard of that. I've never seen that. I've never experienced that. I asked the members of the Roto Underworld game analyst team, the guys that chart the games, the deep passes, the evaded tackles, the contested catches. Have you ever seen a full game go by where none of the running backs evaded a single tackle? They had never heard of such a thing. We went back through the annals, all the stats we've compiled for playerprofiler.com. We've never seen that. Level of ineptitude at the running back position for a full team, for a full game. It, it, it defies comprehension. But that is Houston. It's just Houston. It used to be Jacksonville. It used to be just Jacksonville. That's all you just say. You just say Jacksonville. Because it would be incompetence up and down. Running back position, quarterback position, wide receiver, tight end. Just incompetence at every position. You knew they weren't going to score points. You knew it was a fantasy wasteland. You just said, you just shook your head and just said, oh, Jacksonville. Toby Gerhardt, oh, <clears throat> Jacksonville. Now it's Houston. Oh, Houston. Ugh. I get it. Their, their passing game is good. But when you think about the running game, you just shake your head and just go, oh, Houston. Ugh. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Taiwan Jones had three touches for the Raiders and broke five tackles. <laughs> right? Think about that. <laughs> So Taiwan Jones had 
over 100% juke rate, Chris Polk and Alfred Blue for a full game had zero. Both Taiwan Jones and Jonathan Grimes, Jonathan Grimes, the other running back on Houston, the guy that actually deserves to get the ball over Alfred Blue and Chris Polk, yet they won't for whatever reason. Inexplicable. Who knows? I'm not even going to try to speculate why they're not giving Jonathan Grimes touches. Who cares? But both Taiwan Jones and Jonathan Grimes deserve to be stashed in deep leagues right now. Now, be careful playing Duke Johnson tonight. This is your warning. It's a small sample. But Johnny Manziel has thrown only eight passes to tailbacks on 73 career passes. That is an incredibly low rate. Duke Johnson only became fantasy relevant after Josh McCown came back from his first injury. Now he's out again because, of course, NFL, violent sport. So McCown likes to check down to the running back. Johnny Manziel loves to chuck it up. That's the difference. Loves to throw the ball downfield. Loves to be aggressive. Interception, oh well. And for that reason, I like Taylor Gabriel and Travis Benjamin this week. I have Taylor Gabriel and Travis Benjamin ranked higher than most people this week. And I know they're not very good. Travis Benjamin, he's at least super fast, right? So Travis Benjamin, we like his speed. Stretch X receiver. On a team, if you were devising the optimal skill sets for different players you would deploy for an offense, you'd love to have Travis Benjamin in a stretch X position. Oh yeah, I think he's good, particularly in that field stretching role. I think he would be an ideal candidate for a team that if you're trying to build a super team with ideal skill sets, Travis Benjamin absolutely has a place on that team. Taylor Gabriel, no, because Taylor Gabriel is small and he's not that fast. So Taylor Gabriel, it's not that exciting. And he's not a player that... If I were building a team, if I were an NFL GM, he's not a player I would target, but it doesn't matter. Those are going to be your starting receivers because the third receiver tonight against the Bengals is going to be Dwayne Bowe. Dwayne Bowe is the anti-year-of-the-old-man archetype, right? Everyone else was getting their year-of-the-old-man stamp. There's a whole line of 30-year-old-plus NFL players, and the NFL was handing out Year of the old man cards and said, you get rejuvenated for a year. You get rejuvenated for a year. Here you go, Steve Smith. Here you go, James Jones. Here you go, Gary Barnage. Here you go, Ben Watson. My God, Ben Watson. He scored six more PPR fantasy points this year than Jimmy Graham. Ben Watson is going to be a tight end one the rest of the year as a featured weapon for Drew Brees. And Ben Watson has great athleticism. He's just getting older, but apparently he's been rejuvenated just like all of these other receivers, so doesn't matter. Just ride with it. Don't ask questions about Ben Watson and where, how he was able to rediscover his great athleticism. It was there all along. It's on his profile, so just roll with it. Roll with Ben Watson the rest of the year as a starting tight end in fantasy, as a tight end one. Absolutely. He's been better than Jimmy Graham for crying out loud. So they were handing out these year of the old man cards and just forgot to give one to Dwayne Bowe. (laughs) So if you're a starting wide receiver, you're probably going to be in the top 40 in the weekly rankings. And that's where Taylor Gabriel is. And we have Travis Benjamin even higher. We have Travis Benjamin at 32. Taylor Gabriel is at 45. So not top 40, but close to it. Projecting 9.25 fantasy points for Taylor Gabriel. I'm flexing Taylor Gabriel in some very deep leagues because he's the starter and Johnny Manziel likes to throw the ball downfield. That's it. I'm also flexing Nelson Aguilar this week. His production has been nil despite having an over 80% snap share. In the first eight games, Nelson Aguilar's snap share 
over 80%. Think about that. And Jordan Matthews is struggling, man. So if Jordan Matthews is struggling and your other receiving options are Miles Austin, who's been okay, Riley Cooper, who's been hugely volatile, inconsistent, Josh Hoff has been terrible, it makes sense that the Eagles might come into Week 9 with a game plan to heavily target Nelson Aguilar. You can understand why they would do that. Nelson Aguilar was the number one draft pick. And many predicted that he would outproduce Jordan Matthews this year because many said that he was more talented. Now, I disagree with that. Jordan Matthews is the most prolific wide receiver in the history of the Southeast Conference. So I disagree with that. But if you look at what Jordan Matthews has done this year, my God, negative 19.3 production premium on playerprofiler.com, production premium, situation agnostic, efficiency metric, that's 77th in the league. Now, the biggest indictment for Jordan Matthews, negative 15.7 target premium which means he's been 15% less productive on a per-target basis than the other bad receivers on the Eagles. 6.3 yards per target, 61.9 catch rate, 45th in the league, 30% contested catch rate. There's another indictment, 66th in the league, near league bottom in contested catches. Jordan Matthews' efficiency has completely tanked in 2015, and he's a bust. So that's why I'm playing Aguilar.